Let's stand for the reading of our sermon passage today, which is Psalm 3. You have it there in your worship guides. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. O Lord, how many are my foes! Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill, Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, help us now as we have this time of this sermon to be able to listen to you, to have ears to hear. Help us to have hearts and lives that are ready to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. As I start my sermon, it's probably good to do first things first. And this is a psalm that has many firsts. And so let's talk about what these firsts are. Why do I call them firsts? Well, this is a book with 150 psalms, and we're only on number three. And so number three is going to have some things that didn't show up in one and two. And uh, so here they are. This is the first psalm of David in the Psalms. We see that in our superscription there that I read for us. This is the first psalm that has a superscription from David's life. Our worship guide doesn't just start with verse 1. It doesn't just start, O oh Lord, how many are my foes? It starts with a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. It's the first time the word psalm has appeared, a psalm of David. It's the first lament psalm where the person is expressing something that's going wrong in their life and crying out to God in the midst of that. And it's the first psalm with the word Selah. Well, what does Selah mean? No one really knows for sure. Some people think it might mean forever. Uh, many people believe that it's intended to be used as a time to reflect on what has been said so far, uh, maybe a time of a musical interlude. And this next one, I think, is going to be Jesse's favorite. Jesse, I know you're going to love this. I even read, never saw this before, I even read that somebody thinks that Sila 
is the word that David said every time a string broke on his stringed instrument. <laughs> there you go. Uh, so I never knew that one before, but uh, somebody out there thinks that. So we'll take a moment for silent reflection each time we come to Sila in this sermon, when we approach it at the beginning of the psalm, the middle, and at the end. We've already had some times of silence in our liturgy today. We're not really used to taking times of silence during the sermon, but I think it's very fitting for this first psalm that uses the word sila. In verses 1 and 2, there's a lot of bad stuff that's going on. There's betrayal. There's many foes. David is in a tight spot. And there are enemies who are casting doubt on David's relationship with God. Let's talk about each of those a little bit more. Betrayal. The superscription tells us that this psalm originated when David fled from Absalom, his son. And our scripture reading that Shirley did for us today from 2 Samuel gave us part of the backstory to our psalm. What happened between Absalom and David was a story of betrayal and a very famous one in the Bible. David was king, and Absalom started conspiring against him and stole the hearts of the people. But there's more that's going on here than just betrayal between father and son, king and his son. There's more than that. It's more than just between two people. It tells us here that there are many enemies. It's expanding. It's growing in that scripture passage again that Shirley read for us, the last verse that's in our worship guide there, 2 Samuel 15, verse 12. I'll read it for us again. It says, And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel the Gilanite, David's counselor from his city, Gilo. And then here's the key part that I'm pointing out. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing, growing. And then in verses 1 and 2 of our psalm here, Psalm 3, the word many is repeated three times. Let's see them again. Oh Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul. Betrayal. Many enemies. But David's also in a tight spot here. And that's a little bit of a play on words from me. You'll find out soon why. According to one commentator, the Hebrew word that's used here in our ESV, foes, is not the normal word for enemies. And that it's a word that could be translated as oppressor. And it's a word that is often used in a context that would have to do with constriction or hand-to-hand -hand combat. And so David is in a tight spot. 
And when I think of constriction, I think about boa constrictors. And so I went to a website this week that's called xyzreptiles.com, and that website tells us five reasons why it's a good idea to have a pet boa constrictor. Are you ready for these five reasons? Let's hear them. First of all, you might not have known this. You might not have known any of these reasons, but, but you can get a boa constrictor in lots of different colors. Boa constrictors come in reds, oranges, yellows, blacks, whites, grays, and even green. All kinds of color choices for you to have a pet boa constrictor. But another reason why you should get one is because they have a great temperament. You know, they, they are calm and quite docile. Now, I'm reading from the website, but it says, that's not to say that they are timid, however. If they feel threatened, they may hiss, bite, or begin to constrict. While this can be intimidating for the beginner, experienced snake owners will have a better idea of how to avoid provoking these otherwise gentle creatures and minimize any sort of lashing out. Okay, don't worry about that lashing out stuff. It's a gentle, good temperament. Okay, we've had two reasons. Let's keep going. There's five. They are solidly sized. They average around seven to nine feet in length. And so that, that can be an attractive feature. They do fine with versatile housing arrangements. You can uh, have them in an arboreal type of a setting, like a tree-like setting, or you can put them in a ground-dwelling type of setting. You get to pick. You're the owner. You get to choose what kind of setting you put that boa constrictor in. And then the last reason, if I haven't convinced you yet, the last reason is because they have a long lifespan. They will average an average about 20 to 25 years. And if you've had other kinds of pets, maybe a cat, maybe a dog, they die sooner than that. And you lose a companion sooner. And the boa constrictor will be with you for longer. So now that you've heard all five of these reasons for why it's a good thing to have a pet boa constrictor, do you want to get one? No? Silas, you thinking about it? You think you're, oh, okay, you're thinking about it. You'll have to convince your parents too, maybe, but I hope I didn't put too much pressure on the parents there. But, but, uh, but most of us probably do not want a pet boa constrictor. And we don't want that because we know how dangerous they could be. But that's what I think of when I think of a constriction. And that's what this was feeling like for David with these foes, these oppressors. And maybe you're in a tight spot right now, too. Maybe you're feeling trapped and like you have no choices. Almost like a boa constrictor is squeezing the life out of you. But then, besides betrayal, besides many foes, besides being in a tight spot, these enemies are also 
casting doubt on David's relationship with God. At the end of verse 2, they're saying, of my soul there is no salvation for him in God. Last week, our scripture reading was from 2 Samuel chapter 7. And God made a covenant in that passage with David. Instead of David building a house for God, God promised to build a house for David. God promised he was in relationship with David. And yet here are these enemies saying, nah, God is not going to come through for David. So we come to the end of verse 2, and we're asking, will God deliver him? And if the psalm ended here at verse 2, it would be a cliffhanger. We wouldn't know. We have the foes casting doubt on whether God will deliver him. And think about it from David's perspective. David was facing a crisis of faith here. Would God deliver him? Would he be able to trust God for that? We face that crisis of faith in our times of danger and distress. All of that's going on in verses 1 and 2. But then, let's think about enemies some more. David had real physical enemies that were affecting him. We might have all kinds of enemies. We might have real physical enemies. Maybe not very many of us would say someone is our enemy, but some of us might. But beyond that, that's what, besides just real physical enemies, there's, way more, there's more ways that we can have enemies in our lives. We might be our very own worst enemy. What are some examples of this? It's when we say things like, I'm such a failure. I'm good for nothing. Or, if you really knew me, you couldn't love me. And we might say that or think that towards another person, or we might think it about God. If God really knew me, he wouldn't be able to love me. That's one way that we're our own worst enemy, but we're also our own worst enemy when we think more highly of ourselves than we ought. I got this. Everything's under control. That's thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought. We still have other ways that we can have enemies. Our circumstances can feel like an enemy when everything is working against us and we feel trapped. Maybe it's a time of unemployment, a big health problem a relationship breakup that was very important to us. And it all comes crashing down on us all at once. We feel trapped. 
Our culture at large can feel like an enemy. It's hostile to our faith. I haven't even talked about sin yet. Sin is our enemy. Maybe we have an addiction that we're struggling with or a pet sin that we're struggling with that we can't beat. And then what's our final enemy? Death. What enemies are you facing now? Think about your danger or distress as we come to this first sila at the end of verse 2. And let's take a time of silent reflection for that. When we come to verse 3, let's talk about what David didn't do before we talk about what he did. He didn't just make plans and schemes. And how often do we do that? How often do we immediately start making plans when we're dealing with a problem? we got to fix this. So he didn't do that. He didn't flee and never come back. Yes, the, subs, the superscription tells us he was fleeing from Absalom, but if we know the rest of his story, the rest of the backstory in 2 Samuel, he came back. And he didn't just silently give in. Oh, no. Everybody's turned against me. Nobody wants me for king anymore. I'm out of here. Goodbye, everybody. It was nice being your king. Absalom's going to take over now. He didn't do that. These are all possible ways we might respond if we were facing what David was facing. But what does David do? He's talking to God. He's praying. He's saying what he believes about God. So in verse 3, he says three main things about God. He says God is his shield, his glory, the lifter of his head. God is his shield. He's his protection in time of need. And we talked about how that word for foes, enemies, could be translated as an oppressor used in a context of hand-to-hand -hand combat. You want a shield to protect you in a time of hand-to-hand -hand combat. God is his shield. God is his glory. I was recently listening to a sermon by Tim, Tim Keller, and he was preaching on a different passage that also used this word glory, the same word glory. And he was commenting how the word that we have in English that most closely matches the Hebrew word meaning for glory is the word matter. And in English, our word matter can mean something that's has weight, that has substance, and it also can mean importance, significance. And so, in that second way, we would say something like, it matters, or you matter. 
And so here, David is able to say that God is his glory. God is what gives him significance. God is who gives him meaning, importance in this life. No matter what's going on with all those enemies, no matter if they're saying that God won't save him, God gives him significance. God gives him importance. And God is the lifter of his head. Now, when there were enemies in wars and such in this time of when this would have been written, then once one, let's say, one army had conquested, uh, conquered uh, another army, then something that might have been a fairly common practice would be that someone from the conquering army would come along to a person that had been conquered and they would, the conquered people would be laying down on the ground and that conquering person would put their foot on that person's neck. And it was a way to show that they were publicly subjugated in that situation. David was hoping that wasn't going to happen to him. He was hoping he wasn't going to have somebody with his foot, their foot on his neck. But what else can happen sometimes? Sometimes in a situation where you have two enemies facing each other and they're in conflict, one, one person in that party of the enemies could lift up his head at that enemy. And when that's done in that situation, it could be more from pride or arrogance. And David wasn't doing that either. David wasn't lifting up his head in pride or arrogance. He was saying, God is the lifter of my head, which means God accepts him. Do you remember in the book of Genesis when Joseph was in prison and he was needing to interpret some dreams for a couple of his other prisoners, his co-prisoners, and one of them had been the chief cupbearer of the Pharaoh. Well, listen to Joseph as he's speaking to that cupbearer as he's interpreting what happened in this dream. In Genesis chapter 40, verse 13, it says, in Joseph speaking, in three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. And you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. What an encouragement to that cupbearer to know that Pharaoh was going to lift up his head, accept him, restore him. But what an even greater encouragement for all of us to know that our great God is able to be the lifter of our heads. Pharaoh, one earthly king, lifting the head of one earthly cupbearer, two people. God, king of the universe, lifting the heads of all of his people, lifting David's head in this passage. 
when we have trusted in Jesus as our Savior, God is all these things for us too. He is our shield, our glory, and the lifter of our head. We are also in a special relationship with God because of Jesus. And so we can call upon God. I want to point out something else that I read as I was preparing for this sermon in the passage that comes right after our scripture reading from 2 Samuel today. David flees Jerusalem because it is getting to be too tight of a spot, too dangerous for him to stay there. And in verse 4 of our psalm, it says that David cries aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. Where is his holy hill? It's Jerusalem. But David lived in Jerusalem, and he's fled Jerusalem, and now he's far from God's holy hill. And in the midst of our troubles, God can hear us from wherever we are. He hears us when we cry out to him. David didn't have to be on that holy hill. He didn't have to be right next to that place where it was called God's holy hill. He, he was far from it, and yet God heard him. He answered him. God hears us in whatever place we are. Well, at the end of verse 4, we come to our second Selah. If you know Christ, think about God, who is your shield, your glory, the lifter of your head. And if you aren't a Christian, maybe use this time to think about what it would mean to you for God to be your shield, your glory, the lifter of your head. Let's have another time of silent reflection before we continue. Earlier, I talked about how David was facing a crisis of faith. How is he doing with that in this psalm? Well, by faith, he remembers who God is. We've been talking about that in verse 3. And now in verses 5 and 6, he can rest in who God is. Verses 5 and 6, let's just read them. I'll read them for us again. I lay down and slept. Here he's got many, many foes all around him. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. And then we come to verses 7 and 8, and we see more of how he prays to God. Let's notice a couple of things here that kind of jump us back and forth between the beginning and the end of the psalm. Do you see how back in verse 1 that it says, 
Many are rising against me. And then back down in verse 7, what's the first word? Arise, O Lord. So those enemies were rising against him, and now he's calling out, God, rise, arise, O Lord, save me. But back in verse 2, it says, there is no salvation for him in God. But verse 7, save me, O my God. And again in verse 8, salvation belongs to the Lord. And one way of describing salvation is that it's removing restriction. We talked about constriction. And salvation is loosening that back up. It's, it's releasing him from that, releasing someone from that and providing room. At the end of verse 7, or second part of verse 7, we have this, you strike all my enemies on the cheek. That was a way to publicly disgrace and humiliate. He, he was calling out on God to, to disgrace his enemies. And then, you break the teeth of the wicked. This is comparing the wicked or the enemies to wild animals whose strength is taken away when their teeth are crushed. And it makes it where they would be disarmed and have to drop that innocent prey. You can maybe imagine uh, some wild animal carrying a rabbit around in its mouth and its teeth get broken and that has to drop that rabbit because it's harmless now without its sharp teeth. And we've now come to our last sila. So think about God hearing your prayers, salvation coming from the Lord, and his blessings on his people. Let's take some time for silent reflection before I finish the sermon. so far in this sermon, I have put us on the side of David. Have you noticed? David had troubles. We have troubles. David cried out to God. We cry out to God. But what about the enemies, the foes? Do we have anything in common with them? <laughs> I'm laughing because Jesse was like, no, no, not us, not us. <laughs> uh, but let's listen to Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 10. Romans 5, 6 through 10. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were, here it is, 
enemies. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. But let's go a little further. David prayed and asked God to save him. Let's think about what happened with Jesus when he was heading toward the cross. And he went to the Garden of Gethsemane. And he spent time in prayer. And we know from the Bible that it tells us that he prayed, if it be your will, take this cup from me. He was asking God to save him from having to go to the cross. God saved David from what he experienced. He delivered him. But God did not save Jesus from death on a cross. God was not a shield or glory or the lifter of Jesus' head on the cross. In fact, we could even say that instead of lifting Jesus' head, that God let others put their foot on Jesus' neck. But Jesus did all of that so that we might know victory and salvation belong to the Lord. So whatever your situation today, if you are in Christ, God is your shield, your glory, the lifter of your head. And you can trust him in the midst of whatever is going on. And if you don't know Christ as your Savior, then you can know that Christ went through worse circumstances than what David did and what we've described in this sermon so that you might know God's blessing and be one of his people. Let's pray.